It's, um, it's easy to judge me now. Stand where you stand, sit where you sit, and look at me and judge my life. I mean, after all, it's been 3,100 years or so since I passed from this earth. 
Everything you need to know about me, or everything you know about me, it's not everything you need to know about me, but everything you do know about me is just on one page. I mean, you can sum up my entire life in just one page. There's one paragraph about me down here further in, in another book, but you, know, you live your whole life, and when you melt it down at the end, people judge you by just a single page. About a few events in your life. And that's what's left of you. I was a judge. I was the ninth judge of the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews. And there were 15 or so of us. I'm the, I, I, my name is Jephthah. So that tells you a lot about me. I mean, you get it just hearing the name. That tells you pretty much my story. Um, you, ha- you, you have Hebrew, right? So, okay, so you don't have Hebrew. So... Oh, well, then let me explain a little bit. So my name, Jephthah, it means open, like opens, like, like opens mouth, inserts foot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, like opens his mouth and anything could come out. Like opens his mouth and it might be blessing this time and it might be a curse the next or opens his mouth and it's just a rant. Like, like use, when he's really scared, like I am right now, a little bit nervous, like opens his mouth and talks too fast to try to rally people and get people excited because maybe that way they won't, they, they won't look at me so closely because I'm, I'm just a little nervous about all this. You know, I, I came today to make my case to you. I, I, because I, I know that, you know, when you just read, page, when you just read words on a, on, a, on, a page, on a single page of a book, it's, it's, it's hard to get the meaning of things. I mean, you know what you know what they say about you know what they say about conversation is that when you have a conversation with someone, less than ten percent of the meaning in the conversation actually comes from the words. Well, when you have a conversation, you you can hear a person's voice, you can see their body language, and you can see eye to eye. And and ninety percent of the meaning of a conversation is wrapped up in those things. Only ten percent is wrapped up in the words. And and that's why a a page and a book like the Bible doesn't really give you the full sense of things, the sense of my life. And, and so I jumped at the chance to come and tell you my story so that you could judge me. And so you could judge yourself. You could look me eye to eye and say, okay, I think that's a straight story or no, I, I think that's a, that's a bunch of hooey. I, I want you to get me. If you're going to get me, then you're going to need to know where I came from. You need to know something about my family. You need to know something about the time in which I lived. You need to know the politics that I lived in. You need to know the, the religion that I had. If you don't know those things, then you really, really can't judge me. I mean, you can judge me, but you won't judge me rightly, and I want you to judge me rightly. I'm a judge. In my time, we worshipped idols. I know. I know, idols. Now, this is a little odd. I know you're all sort of beyond idols now. Uh, you've moved on to much greater forms of worship. But um, it seems ridiculous. But, yeah, we used to put poles on the, on the tops of hills. And we used to have small figurines, some out of wood and some out of clay. Some of the, some of the clay ones have made it through. You've got a couple dozen of them left. Um, 
you know, weird-looking animals, uh, fertility gods, for instance, weird-looking animals that have multiple breasts. You know, that, that was the kind of things that people had in their home and they worshipped. Or they would go up on these hills where there were, there were poles and they would lay prostate and they would cry out to, to the gods there. And, and it, got, it, it got even stranger and weirder than that. I mean, I, I'll admit, I mean, these were our idols. They're not yours. Um, but, you know, it even went so far as to we had, we had what were called temple prostitutes. We had young men and young women who were taken from their families and put into temples so that people could go and consecrate and have sex with them in order to, to please the gods, for pleasure for the gods, so that gods would bless our nation. And even sometimes in the most extreme cases, even though it was abhorrent and even though it wasn't really to happen, we, we even practiced uh, human sacrifice. Now, those were our idols, and, and you're beyond those now. I, I, think it, I think it was one of your philosophers who said that the problem is not that people don't believe in God. The problem is that people will believe just about anything when it comes to God. One of your teachers, I think, one of your teachers, a, a guy named Tim Keller, said the entire story of the Bible is about a struggle it's a struggle between true faith and idolatry. In the beginning, we were made to worship and serve God and to tend the creation he made for his own pleasure. But instead, we turned to creating our own creation, and we worshiped it. And that's, that really gets to the essence of it. You know, Paul, who uh, I, I had the pleasure of having breakfast with this morning before I drove in, you know, he said it this way. He said, you know, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator. And he, and he said that to the church, people like yourselves in Rome a couple thousand years ago. And, and before you discredit the, Rome's, the Romans, just remember, I mean, they were great architects. Much of your design and your government and your structures today, they handed down to you. Your language is a function of them. And language drives how we think. And so maybe... Maybe, just maybe, that's true of you too. So why did we do that? You know, why did we choose to worship something that we made with our own hands? Why, why did we stop putting God first? I mean, look, God, Jehovah, who, who called us out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, a place where our people were... were in submission to the Egyptians. And they were merciless. They had us making bricks out of mud and straw. They made us miserable. And if you go back further than that, our people were wanderers. And God brought us out of that and he brought us into a place he called the promised land and gave us farms, gave us stores, gave us a way to prosper in a place where we wouldn't have to be nomads or slaves. He gave us all that. You could walk out in the morning and you could smell my world, a world of farm animals and dust and sun and heat and blessings of rain at the right times. You could smell that, but, but we chose to walk away from that, to forget that, and somehow, in forgetting that, be forgotten by God as well. 
Ah, oh, we, we chose for some reason. Maybe it was because those idols represented you know, our own sensibilities, N- not God's, but ours. There was something you know, that we had a part in creating. Maybe it was because they represented our best efforts. Maybe they made us feel better about ourselves somehow. Maybe it was because everybody could have their own because there's so many different people and everybody has their own values. And so you, know, you could have your idol and you could have yours and you could make yours and I could make mine and they could all be a little different. And, and that's very convenient. Maybe, maybe it was that. You know, everybody in my time did what was right into their own eyes, under their own eyes. That's, that's how we described our time. And those idols just fit well for us that way. They worked well. Well, we thought they did. But maybe it was because we could make them into our own image. Maybe it was that. And that's affirming. Never mind that they're powerless. I mean, never mind that they rot. Wood rots and, and clay is destroyed and and bronze metals rust. Never mind that the idols were limited. I mean, limited by geography. You know, the idol in one place at that time was a long, you know, to go 20 miles in my day was a long ways. You know, and so there might be an idol for this 20-mile space of people, and there'd be another idol that people worship 20 miles down the road. And uh, So there was a, it was like wherever you went in the world, there was, a, there was another idol, a, there wasn't like one true idol. There wasn't like one truth that could be spoken that could unify. Instead, everybody, every area, every geography had its own idol. Never mind that the idols bred ignorance. They made us blind. They made us deaf. And they made us speechless. Because the thing about an idol, in time it makes you like itself. Whatever you worship, you become. Idols are deaf, blind, and speechless, without reason, without hearts. And so we became ignorant too. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is obscenely costly. And that's is my story. My father's name is Gilead. Not, not that that really matters. And, and, and my mother's name, she's nameless to you and will remain so. What I want you to know about her was that she was a prostitute. My father had a for real wife, a, a wife by the law, and he had children by her. You can imagine what my relationship was with them. It was living hell. I mean, it was more than clear that uh, when the time came that I wouldn't receive any inheritance. There was nothing left. There was nothing for me there. There was, there was no land. There were, nothing was going to be passed to me. And so as soon as I could, I, I got out of there. I ran off to a land, and, and I found other people like me, other people that had not been loved, other people that, that had, had been betrayed. I mean, we were 
a band of brothers. We were a warriors. And we, we took what we wanted, and we didn't really gain the respect of people, but they stayed out of our way. Our fame spread. We started our lives over. We started our own families. We started our, our own community. You know, I, I did all right by myself for myself. You know, I, I built a house. I, you know, by your standards, it would be like a, a mansion in the suburbs, you know. But, but really, it was a building, two stories, which is helpful, because on the top story, we put people, and you can keep an eye out on the horizon for your enemies. Maybe your brothers are going to come back. And on the bottom story, we kept our animals, sheep, cattle, stuff we stored down there. Times got tough for us. Uh, we forgot God. God forgot us. Then the neighboring kings of Philistia and Ammon began to encroach on our land, seeing our weakness and seeing our laziness. And so they began to pick off the outlying farms, and then they began to get more bold and come further in. And, and after 18 years of raiding us and pillaging our people, the king of Ammon made the bold move and inserted his army, his warriors, which, which was one of the best armies in the region. They came across the Jordan, and he inserted them on our land. His intent was clear. It was to take the kingdom of Israel by force. So what did we do? When the wars began, we went to our idols. We bargained with them. We made more offerings. If we just tried harder, if we worked harder, if we behaved better, if we gave a little more, maybe, maybe God would hear us. Maybe these gods would hear us, but they wouldn't relent. And so finally, in our fear, we gave up. And we went back to the God who has ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to feel. And we begged and we cried out to him, Jehovah, remember us. We're your children. We're the children that you brought out of Egypt. We are Abraham's seed. Remember us. He wouldn't have it. And so our enemies continued to provoke us. They continued to build. And we cried out again and again. We came to the point where we finally gave up enough that we tore down the poles off the hills, that we smashed the bales, that we ended the, worship, that we ended the prostitution in the temples. We, we tried to put words and actions with our passion and with our cries. And the truth is none of that mattered that when God finally decided to deliver us, it was because God could not stand the misery, to hear the misery of his people. His heart was broken for us, and, and, and that's what moved him. It wasn't our cry. It wasn't the work we did. It was that he's a God who loves us, and he truly felt for us. Now, this is where it gets crazy. An army was assembled an army with no leader because we had no leader in Israel then. And so as people looked around, God 
told them to call me. Me. Call me to be a judge. I mean, a judge. You don't want a, a person that opens their mouth and two different things come out for a judge. You want a, somebody who's insightful and somebody that can speak truth and somebody that sees things. They chose me. They, they looked at my record with my warriors and, and the fact that we had had some renown, and, and they called me. Proof that God chooses the least. Me, the son of a prostitute. Me, the one that was driven out. Me, the one with no inheritance. They chose me. God chose me. It seems unbelievable now. My brothers came, groveling, with the leaders who had never protected me, and they asked me to be king. They asked me to, excuse me, to be judge, to be the general that would lead them against the king of Ammon. I couldn't believe it. I've been tricked enough in my life. So I made them write it out. Nah, if you lead this army and this army wins and you annihilate the king of Ammon, then you will be our judge. I, I took them then at that word and I went with them and I went to other leaders and I made them say it again and I made it say, be said over and over and over to be sure that if I did in fact annihilate the king of Ammon, then in fact I would be their judge. And then we laid it down in prayer and it was an agreement in the sight of God that if I was to destroy Ammon, that I would be their judge. Something happened then that never happened to me before. The Spirit of God came and resided in me. And I felt peace and confidence like I had never felt before. Before, I used my mouth to rouse myself as a sort of defense because really just a small person, and I used that as sort of a foil. But now I, I really felt it here. And so I knew the time was right, the time to lead the army of Israel into battle. But you know, a fish doesn't jump very far from the water when they jump out. I, I, I still really lacked the knowledge I needed to really worship God in spirit and in truth. I mean, I, I've been worshiping at, worshiping at Baals and idols my whole life. You know, and, and I was the sort of person that just was used to making rash vows in the hopes that I could bargain or could negotiate something more out of God. Like, if I do this, then you'll do that for me. I mean, I know you don't do anything like that now. I mean, like, if I just study, will you just give me an A so I can pass this class? If I just pray before I flip this egg, will you promise me that I won't break the yolk? That's trite. If, 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 if I promise not to drink anymore, will you give me my wife back? If I promise, if I promise, if I promise, will you do this for me? Will you do that for me? Will you do everything for me? And so I swore an oath to the living Jehovah, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I mean, I got some good sheep, I got some good cows, I got some good stuff on the first floor. Now, who did I think I was fooling, really? 
God finds such oaths detestable. No one, no one can add anything to what God's work is to be. I mean, if God pushed back the king of Ammon, wouldn't that be enough? How would my sacrificing on top of that add any value to his mercy and his grace? It would add nothing. No one can swear upon anything. You can't swear upon your own life. You can't swear upon the life of another person. You can't even swear upon, Jesus said, the hair on the head, on your head, because you don't make the hair on your head grow. It's all God's, and you can't swear it. You can only offer it to him in obedience. Still, the Lord, Jehovah, because he's great in mercy, he gave me the Ammonites. He laid them into my hands. We pushed them back over the River Jordan. We destroyed 20 of their cities. We secured the peace in our land for many years afterwards. And when it was over, what I thought was, <laughs> he heard my promise to do more. God is pleased that I offered him a sacrifice. And he heard my, my vow, and, and there you go. He's not deaf. You can bargain with God. The devastation that was Ammon's was nothing like the devastation that was to come for me. I'm riding up to the house, and as I'm coming up, what comes out the door? Sheep? Nope. Cow? Nope. What came out the door was my daughter dancing in my victory carrying a tambourine and dancing and singing and praising me and the vow I'd made. Ah! So stupid now. So stupid. When I saw her, I was overwhelmed. I fell to the ground. I tore my clothes. And I cried out, my daughter, my daughter, no, you brought me down, I'm devastated, I made a vow I cannot break. I'm a judge, how will you judge me? Judge me as God has judged me. I did not escape the great consequence of my ignorance and rashness. My daughter was forever lost to me and her mother. I was ignorant, and the consequence was that I lost what really mattered in life. One of your teachers has said, if your concept of God is radically false, then the more devout you are, the worse it will be for you. And that was me. 
that was me. I, I thought you worshipped the living Jehovah the way you worshipped, the same way you had worshipped your idol. Ah, God is spirit and God is truth and he'll be worshipped in spirit and in truth or he won't be worshipped at all. And I was so far from that. Judge me as ignorant and without a defense. No reason for it. In front of the time we were raised in spite of the idols, there was still rumors and whispers of truth. From the time we were growing up, we were taught the Torah, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. How much clearer could that be? And yet we have other gods before God, before the one true God. And tremendous consequences are mine because of that. Judge me for having the mouth of a negotiator, one who thinks that he can in some way add to what God has done. Judge me as God has judged me. And you be judged as God will judge you. Because he will judge you. Your life will fit on one page. Maybe you'll get a paragraph, too. My paragraph says something very surprising. You'll find it written about a thousand years after I died in a book called Hebrews. And that paragraph also shows that God judged me as a hero. A hero. Me, a, a, not just any hero, not a military hero, a, a spiritual hero. A spiritual hero, me. And, and, and here's what it says. I do not have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson. Jephthah, that's me. About David and Samuel. The prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. God did not count my misguided passions and my blind ignorance against me. No, no, no. Instead, he accounted for them with his own grace. When God looked at my heart, he was not blind to the wreckage of my open mouth. He was not blind to my ignorance. He was not blind to my, my passion and the damage that those things caused. But he did not judge me solely on that basis. God also saw my obedience. And he counted that obedience as faith because God sees the heart. And he knows the motivation. And he can overlook the consequences when the motivation is love for him. Now, where I am now, there's just three things left. There's faith, hope, and love. Where you are, it's still a struggle for those things. But God, in my moment of struggle, saw that those things were present in my heart. And he decided that that's what I was to be judged upon. So through me, God freed his people, freed them not only from the Ammonites, but freed them to worship once again in spirit and truth the one true God. So my name is Jephthah, 
And it has two meanings. Open, like open and insert foot in mouth, and opens as in God has opened and freed his people through me. When I heard that this community of God's people was studying character, I wanted to come and open my mouth. And I wanted you in that opening to go free, to hear freedom. I want you to hear these things. Your character is shaped by the things you worship. You don't worship different idols than we did. Yeah, you might think that we're almost prehistoric or backwards because we made hard symbols, hard objects that symbolized the things that you still worship. You're just a bit more abstract now, but you and I, you and I, and every person between us, we've all worshiped the same thing. All our idols are the same. We worship security, power, acceptance, affirmation, love, comfort. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but they're all things that Yahweh is and things that he gives us when he gave his son Jesus, who is security, who is love, who is acceptance, who is assurance. But we'll have none of that. We would prefer to make those things by our own hands. Your character is shaped by the things you worship. Your history determines your idols. I hope your parents aren't in the room. Look at your parents. Look at your grandparents. They've given you their idols. At least 80% of your idols you have, they've been handed down, I'll bet. Uh, it's clear to see my story and see what idols were handed to me, but you, what's your story? What idols did they hand you? Your family life tells you that whatever you worship, whatever you worship, will drive your character. Idols drive character. What's your character? Is it becoming more corrupt or is it being redeemed? Who are you worshiping? There are tremendous consequences to undeveloped character. Take one look at me. You will not escape consequence, regardless of who you are. But God sees not only our consequences. God sees our faith. And it is upon faith and not works that he judges our lives. I'm going to leave you with two questions before I head out or up. Your house, it has a bottom floor, it has a top floor. On the top floor, you can see people coming from a long ways so you can defend. On the bottom, you have the stuff you value, the stuff you depend on to live. been making any vows about the stuff on the bottom that maybe you're going to be surprised later to find out are going to cost you some things up top? Have you considered that if you're a person who's paid those kinds of consequences, have you considered 
that God has covered that with grace. That the day will come when you will join me and Abraham, Isaac, Rahab, all these judges, all these prophets, all these people that you can read about in this book, that the day will come where you will join us in what's called a cloud of witnesses. And in that moment, your consequences will matter no more. God will judge them and then release you from them. And all will be faith, hope, and love. The cost of ignorance is greater than you can ever imagine. The extent of grace is far greater again. I want to pray for you.